0: But anyway, I invite you to turn with me to Isaiah 40 this morning as we look at this uh, part of this wonderful chapter together. And the title of this sermon is The Incomparable God of All Comfort. And my wife is so scared of me saying incomparable. And that's not the right way to say this, but bear with me because if it does come out that way, just blame it on my, my, my past life as a football coach. I'm not supposed to be sophisticated, but incomparable is how it's supposed to sound, I believe. Uh, But turn to Isaiah 40 as we look at this this morning. I just want to begin by asking you all, what brings you comfort? What brings you encouragement when you are anxious or discouraged? Where do you turn to in times of stress and worry in times of trial or suffering, or just plain old tiredness and fatigue that comes from living this life. I think one thing that we all know is that it's glaringly obviously obvious as you read God's word. From Genesis to Revelation, life for God's people is filled with trials. Suffering has promised us hardship, and it can be filled with lots of pain and sorrow. See, ease and safety are never promised to us, but comfort is. Not the comfort that comes from a lack of hard times, but a comfort that comes in the midst of it. Not a comfort that comes from the absence of trials, but a comfort that comes in the presence of truth. and Not a comfort that comes from the things of this world, but a comfort that comes from something much greater than anything this world can offer a comfort that is eternal and not temporary. See, for most of her existence, Israel chased the cheese of worldly comfort, and time and time again, she got caught in the trap. Israel continued to look at their neighbors and copy them. They saw the success and the growth and the power of the pagans and sought comfort in their religious systems. Israel refused to worship Yahweh alone. She refused to be loyal to him alone. She refused to be comforted by him alone. See, Israel's whole existence, except for a few good kings and a few good years, was known for this evil pursuit. God had said that they were to have no other gods besides him. God desired to be their God and for them to be his people, and yet, through his constant reminders and proving himself over and over to them, They pursued the gods of their neighbors. In addition to this idol worship, Israel refused to trust God alone. Isaiah points this out to us as one of the things that they were judged for. Israel's kings made alliances with pagan nations such as Assyria and Egypt and Babylon. They trusted in these nations to protect and defend them and their land. In fact, when we arrive here at Isaiah 40 in this time of history, ultimately wars were not between nation and nation necessarily. They were between one nation's God and the other nation's God. So when Israel aligned herself with another nation, they were trusting in that other nation's God more than they were Yahweh. And this alliance proved Israel's belief that Babylon's gods or Assyria's gods, or Egypt's gods, were more able to protect and defend Israel than Yahweh. Israel's alliance with other nations was ultimately a rejection of the one true God. And so Israel sought comfort in the worship and trust of the gods of the nations that Yahweh had time and time again proven himself to be greater than. And now, in Isaiah 40, as a result of this, Israel finds herself in this trap. The Assyrians have decimated the northern kingdom, and they've decimated most of the southern kingdom and have pillaged and destroyed many of the cities. They've taken over the farmlands and carried the people off to a foreign land. And now the Babylonians have finished the job, doing the same with the remainder of the Jews in Jerusalem. See, the comfort sought for in idols and foreign nations has turned out to be a false comfort, a temporal comfort, and really no comfort at all. And so, in upholding his honor and fulfilling his promises of judgment, which he warned of in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, he removes his people from the land that he gave them. Total destruction and captivity, God's heavy hand of judgment. Is now here. See, in the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, this was the message to the Jews. Judgment is coming. Your idol chasing and your lack of trust in the one true God is bringing God's judgment upon you. If you read in Isaiah 39, verses 5 through 7, Isaiah said, Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all that, that which your fathers have stored up to this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. But as soon as we turn the page to chapter 40, the tone and message that Isaiah takes changes drastically. The message here changes from a message of judgment to a message of comfort. Not only does the message change, but we also have to notice that the audience that Isaiah is writing to changes as well. Isaiah is no longer, in in chapter 40, speaking to the men and women who live in Judah just prior to the Babylonian invasion. In chapter 40, Isaiah is now, God tells Isaiah to write to the people who will be living several years in the future. To write to these exiles who are now in Babylon. And he's telling him to comfort them. Not with promises of ease and safety, but a promise of comfort a comfort in the god who both judges and shows compassion in verses 1 and 2 we can hear this tenderness of god who is now calling isaiah to encourage his people in isaiah 41 and 2 comfort comfort my people says your god speak tenderly to jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended that her iniquity is pardoned that she is received from the lord's hand double for all her sins. And if you keep on reading in the following verses, Isaiah's words to these exiles comfort them with reminders of God's glory and, and His enduring word. And in verses 9-11, to 11, Isaiah is calling these people to declare the might and rule of Yahweh and that He will one day gather this people back to Himself. This is God's promise To these exiles. Years of exile. Years of persecution and hardship. Years of feeling the heavy hand of God's judgment. And now they hear that He will relent. He will draw them back to Himself. And there is great comfort in this hope that Isaiah now speaks of. And this is where I want to pick up this morning. In verse 12. So read with me. Isaiah 40, beginning in verse 12, and we'll read to the end of this chapter. Isaiah 40, verse 12. And who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales, and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing in emptiness. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it for silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that it will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol, That will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told from you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Who stretch out the heavens like a curtain. And spread them like a tent to dwell in. Who brings the princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them, and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their hosts by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, and not one of them is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Father, as we come to passages like this, we read of truths about you that in our finite minds, is they are very hard to comprehend. Lord, we pray for your Spirit to help us this day to not only know and comprehend these truths, but to allow them to drive us and motivate us to worship and obedience, to praise and to honor and to proclamation. Pray to this end today. In Jesus' name, amen. Remember, Isaiah here is writing to the men and women who will one day be in exile in Babylon. And his purpose is to comfort them in their hardship with the hope of restoration. But in bringing them comfort, Isaiah just simply points them to the character of God. And so we're going to see in these these verses that Isaiah is going to lay out three attributes of God that comfort us in the hard times in life. In verse 12 through 20, we see the first attribute that Isaiah speaks of is God's majesty. And in doing so, he asks a series of three questions. The, the first one, in verse 12, draws out or draws our minds to his omnipotence. And the second and third remind us of his omni, uh, or, uh, I'm sorry, omni, om, omniscience. The first one is his I said that correctly. Yes. Omnipotence and omniscience. Sorry. Verse 12 is omnipotence. Isaiah points to God's omnipotent majesty by drawing our attention to God's creation. He draws our attention to his creation, our relationship to it, and God's relationship to it. So as we consider just the waters of the earth, from our perspective, we know that water covers just over 70% of the earth. 140 million square miles of this earth is covered with water. There are just over 322 million cubic miles of water in volume. The water pressure at the deepest part of the ocean is more than 8 tons per square inch. That would be the same as having 50 jumbo jets sitting on top of your chest. Vast amounts of water. Imagine trying to empty one of the oceans with just a bucket. It's a ridiculous thought. It's unfathomable. But who holds all of this in the palm of his hand? God. How about the heavens, the universe and all in it, our galaxy, the Milky Way? Alone is so vast that it would take 100,000 years traveling at the speed of light to travel from one end of it to the other. And that's without any stops. My family and the thumb sized bladders that a couple of them have, we would have to multiply that by five. <laughs> in addition to that, one of our neighboring galaxies is 2.3 million light years away from our galaxy. Again, just the vastness of the heavens. It's, in, it's impossible to even fathom its size. But who has marked them off with just the difference from his? tip of his pinky to his thumb. God. How about just the earth itself? Some scientists estimate the earth to weigh approximately 5.972 sextillion tons. That's a 5.972 with 18 zeros behind it. We really have no way of knowing. We have no way of measuring these things. Because we are so small and they are so immense. Who can really measure the earth? Who can weigh them out? Who has the weights and measures to really know the earth's size? (coughs) Only God. We have to make up numbers in order to describe God's creation. Yet all of it sits comfortably in his hands and well within his power. See, none of this is hyperbole. Isaiah is not exaggerating for effect. In fact, his descriptions of God are still underestimations of who God really is. Isaiah's question in 13 points us to his omniscience. See, the Hebrew word that is translated there in verse 13, measured, is, in, is different than the one translated the same way in verse 12. In verse 13, it means to direct. And so Isaiah asks, who directs the Spirit of the Lord? He's asking, who shows him? Whom does he consult? Who taught him or gives him understanding? The obvious answer is no one. No one is God's equal in wisdom and understanding. Paul says it like this in Romans 11. Oh, the depth and the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? No one is God's equal. God's majesty is over the heavens and the whole universe. His majesty is over the whole earth. And now Isaiah continues in pointing us to the majesty of God by comparing him to the nations of the earth. He's showing us just how insignificant the nations really are. In comparison to his majesty, the nations are like a drop in the bucket. In fact, Isaiah says he continues that all the lumber and animals in Lebanon would not be able to make a sacrifice worthy of what God deserves. In all of this, Isaiah is not limiting the vastness of the heavens or the wisdom and knowledge that man can know and learn, or the size of the nations. But by comparing these things to God, He is proving the majesty of God, the majesty that is incomparable to anything else. All of this then gets us to the point of verses 18 to 20. Isaiah says, To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare With him. An idol? A craftsman casts it and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it for silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. For generations, this is what Israel had done. They likened the majesty of God to an idol. The very God who holds and measures and weighs the universe, who is more majestic than anything the eye can see or imagine, the very God who is omniscient, he is all-wise and all-knowing, who has never been taught or learned one single thing, he's never been surprised or shocked, has been compared to an idol. These idols are worthless. Whether you're rich or you can have one made out of gold, or you're poor and can only have one made of wood, it doesn't matter. In fact, Isaiah says at the end of verse 20, that if the idol is not made by a, skillful, a skilled person, then it won't even be able to stand on its own. And Isaiah is declaring, enough. Yahweh, your God, the one true God, is incomparable in His majesty, and that is where your comfort should come from. Turn the eyes of your heart to Yahweh, because He is incomparable in His majesty, and Him alone comes comfort. So again, I ask you, what brings you comfort? Is this comforting to you? See, until God is considered all majestic, Until he is believed to be greater than all else, then you won't find comfort in him. The idol of self will only satisfy for only a moment. The idol of ease will never bring true comfort. And the idol of safety will one day fall over. The incomparable majesty of God points us to the fact that he is over all and he reigns in power and wisdom. So what in your life is bigger than God? What in your life is outside of God's domain and authority? What is going on in your life that you feel like you need to instruct God in? See, so often our trials and suffering and pain and sorrow, they cloud our vision and all we can see are the circumstances that we're stuck in. Our trials are like a, a small hand that we stick in front of our eyes, and it keeps us from seeing the majesty of the skies. We have to be able to see our trials for what they truly are. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says this in regards to the afflictions in his life, in this earthly body, he says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. He says this. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. See, Paul lived with the right perspective between this temporary life and eternal glory. What happens here is light and momentary compared to the eternal weight of glory. It says, look to the eternal and the unseen. Move the clouds of your circumstances away so you can see the whole of God's majesty. See, only when our light and momentary afflictions are viewed in this right perspective, in comparison to God's majesty, will we ever be able to find true comfort in God? And That's where our comfort starts. Dwelling and basking in the majesty of God, grabbing hold of Him and relying on Him, knowing that all else will fail. And only then will our comfort be real and eternal. He's above all and over all, and we can take comfort in knowing that He knows all. And in times of trial and hardship, we have to remind ourselves of God's majesty. In verses 21 to 26, we see the second character of God that should bring us comfort. In verse 21, Isaiah now shifts his focus off of the incomparable majesty of God to the incomparable sovereignty of God. For the men and women in exile who had been living under this heavy hand of Babylon, all hope has been lost. It would seem that as if they were at the mercy of the leader of the most powerful nation on the face of the earth, once a free and prosperous people, the Jews were now slaves and considered filth and despised by those who owned and controlled them. To the exiles, the rulers of Babylon were the victors, and we're now the sovereign rules on earth. It was Babylon who had all the power. It was Nebuchadnezzar who had all the authority. Despair and hopelessness and shame have set in. This is their life now. And there didn't seem to be any light at the end of the tunnel. The future was just as dark and hopeless as the present. And Isaiah's message is one of comfort. And he begins with questions. Not so that these people will answer them, but so that these people will begin to think deeply about the difference between what they believe and what they should believe. He's calling them to remember what they have heard and been told regarding creation, and more importantly, its creator. And so he does this by a side-by-side comparison of God with man and his leaders. It is God who sits above It is man who is like a grasshopper. God is the one who put the sky in its place, and mankind lives under it. Yahweh is the sovereign ruler of all things, and to him all authority and power and rule. He is the one who brings man's princes and rulers to nothing and emptiness. These are the answers to Isaiah's questions. God's sovereignty over all things should be what comes to their minds when the hopelessness of man's laws come bearing down on them. In verse 24, Isaiah further describes Yahweh's relationship to these earthly rulers. Compares them to a crop. He puts the one in power whom he chooses. And he uses the ruler to accomplish his purposes. And when he is through, the man is gone. The rulers of the earth are just pawns in Yahweh's hand that He uses to fulfill His glorious purposes. And we read in chapters 36 and 37 an example of this. If you look back, we see where God raised up the Assyrians. And He made them into a mighty and great nation. And He used them to judge the northern kingdom. And He sent them into Judah. And coming to Jerusalem, Assyria's king, Sennacherib mocks God and declares that Judah's God is not strong enough to defeat Assyria's mighty army. God then strikes down 185,000 of these soldiers. And Sennacherib returns to Nineveh with his tail between his legs. And then to add insult to injury, he is murdered by two of his sons as he's worshiping one of his gods. And it's not long after that that Assyria is replaced as the world power by the Babylonians. Scarcely had Sennacherib been planted and sown. Scarcely had he taken roots and God blew. The king withered and he was blown off like stubble. God raised him up and God removed him. This king The most powerful man in the world at this time had no authority or power over Yahweh. He was not sovereign. God does the same thing with Babylon's ruler. He is raised up by God for the purpose of judging Judah, and he is eventually overthrown by the Persians and their king Cyrus. And of Cyrus, in Isaiah 44, 28, God says that he will fulfill my purposes Isaiah's point is clear. God is sovereign, not man. or the princes or the rulers of the nations. To even further drive this point home, in verse 25, Isaiah quotes God, and God asks, Whom will you compare me that I should be like him? Again, this is not a question to receive a quick, short Sunday school answer but one to cause deep consideration of the character and attributes of God. These nations and rulers who have and are causing this despair and hopelessness are nothing. They are under the control of the incomparable God in his sovereign hand. Just in case you might begin to think that Yahweh is not sovereign over all of creation, Isaiah reminds us and he points our attention off of the earth and back to the stars. He refers to the stars as a host. With our naked eye, we can see only around 6,000 stars on a clear night. Beyond that, there's another estimated 1 billion to 400 billion stars. Sounds like a weatherman. Somewhere in there. And plus there's another 140 billion galaxies before ours. You can sit down and do the math. But no matter how accurate these numbers are, we know that each and every star has been created by God. He has numbered every one of them. He has named them. And each one of them is exactly where He has placed them. Even the stars are under the authority of his incomparable sovereign hand. The author of Hebrews tells us that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Paul tells us in Colossians 1.17, In him all things hold together. The stars are right where they are commanded to be. And not one of them will move an inch unless God tells them to. Each and every ruler and government has been and will be sovereignly placed in power by God. And he is not surprised by the evil or the good because all of it is under his authority and power and rule. Their purposes may be for evil, but he will use them for good. No ruler, no nation, nothing has been created outside of God's sovereign rule. The stars don't even do what they want. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we can find comfort in the fact that whatever we are going through, all of it is under God's sovereign control and will be used by him for good. That's why Paul reminds us in Romans when he says that all things work for good for those who love God and are called by God. God's people can declare along with Joseph that what man means for evil, God will use for good. And this is why James can tell us to consider it joy when trials come. Not because of the trial, but because of what God does in the heart and soul of his people through his control of the circumstances. Maybe a couple reasons why God's sovereignty may not be comforting to you. First reason is you may not believe in it. You may not believe that God has complete control and authority over all things. Therefore, you are living and you are hoping for fate. Second reason you may not be comforted by God's sovereignty is you may have a different definition of what good is. You may treasure something different than what God treasures. See, when God's sovereignty is not comforting to us, we have a problem. We have to orient our minds and hearts to God's character. He is in control and has authority over all things, and He is good and He is wise. And when we believe the truth of who God is and that He does and what He does is consistent with His unchanging character, and that it is always best, His sovereignty is a comfort. It's comforting to know that this incomparable God is not subject to anyone or anything. In all things, even the hardship in our lives are under His control and part of His purposes. Finally, this morning in verses 27 to 31, Isaiah speaks of God's incomparable faithfulness. In these last five verses, the despair of the exiles is revealed to us. They they have become faint and without might. They are weary and exhausted. Their circumstances are perceived as hopeless, and and these people are completely to the end of themselves. Verse 27, it implies that much of this despair and hopelessness comes from their belief that God is through with them. He does not see their situation, nor does He care. They believe that he has grown tired, and he's turned his back on them, and he's now apathetic to their plight. Gleason Archer, in his Old Testament survey, says that up until this time in history, that once a people has been exiled, that was the end. Once a nation was destroyed and taken off into captivity, there was no hope of them returning to their land. And there was certainly no hope of them becoming a nation again. So there was virtually no hope in a restored Israel in the eyes of these people. God had been defeated and God was now through with them. But Isaiah points them back once again to their incomparable God by reminding them of his otherness. Yahweh is not bound by time. He's everlasting. Yahweh is not bound by space He created the ends of the earth, and he sits above them. Yahweh is not limited by the physical or anything that might cause him to be tired or weary. Yahweh is not limited by man's wisdom or the norms of history. Yahweh is not controlled by anything or anyone. He is free to act in any way that he desires, and he is bound to nothing except for one thing his own character God is bound to his character and Isaiah is reminding these these exiles that just as God had to be faithful to his promise to judge he will be faithful to his promise to restore God will not forsake his people he will not waver in his promised love he will not break his covenant with Israel he will be faithful to his promises God after God of the nations had failed and been able to live up to their promises, but not Yahweh. Not the God of Israel. Their way was not hidden from Him. Their right had not been disregarded because He is incomparable in His faithfulness. Just notice again in these verses how personal and intimate this faithfulness is. There is a passion and a care and a regard and a comfort for those who trust and rely upon the lord to accomplish what he says he will do there is power given to the faint there is strength to the weak there's energy to the weary and it is giving to those who wait upon the lord see this idea of wait is not one of idleness but it communicates the idea of waiting with an eager hope for the Lord's promises to be fulfilled. Waiting involves a confident expectation of God's hand. It's an eager expectation that revives the soul. It gives strength to the weary and hope to the hopeless. These exiles were in deep despair and were hopeless because they had forgotten who the incomparable God was. He is incomparable in his faithfulness. Isaiah is telling them to wait for him. Eagerly hope in the Lord he will act and so be comforted by this God who is faithful. And as you continue to read Isaiah, he tells these men and women of God's faithfulness and what he's going to do for them. He will do what has never been done before. He will bring an exiled people back to their land and he will restore them as a nation. Some of you here today are weary. You are faint and weak and exhausted. Life is hard right now. Trials, sorrow, pain. Some of you have experienced that in the past. And if you don't fit any of those two character or categories, it's probably coming. Whatever your case is, In these times, our comfort comes from knowing and waiting on God to fulfill His promises. Grab hold of His promises and trust Him to be faithful. John 14, we have the promise that Jesus will be back one day. Romans describes our salvation. Brothers and sisters, you have been justified. You have been reconciled. You are called and one day you will be glorified. All things in our lives are moving to this glory, which is our good, which is promised to us. We read too in Romans that there is no condemnation for those who are saved. John tells us that one day we will see him face to face. Can you imagine that? What greater comfort is there than in that truth alone? And this is what the author of Hebrews is telling us in Hebrews 10, 23. He says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Why or how? For he who promised is faithful. And the same author continues in Hebrews 11. With these examples who lived with this hope. These men and women of God who lived through hard times and suffering, they were strengthened and encouraged by the promise of God that this world and their circumstances were not the end. They sought a better home. They looked forward to the resurrection. So you want to know how to be strong in trial and not grow weary from the things of this world? Take your eyes off of your circumstances and look to God's character. Run your race with your eyes on Jesus and not down at your own feet. So I ask you again this morning, where do you find comfort in the hard times of life? Our comfort should come from our God who's incomparable in majesty. He's incomparable in sovereignty. He's incomparable in His faithfulness. Looking to the incomparable God is not just something that Isaiah thinks brings comfort. The author of Hebrews tells us to look to Jesus as our example as we run this race of life because he endured the shame of the cross because the seat at the Father's right hand was in view. We're not too unlike the Israelites. We too chase the cheese of worldly comfort. We seek comfort in so many things other than our incomparable God. And when the waves of life begin to beat us around, we oftentimes reach for the dollar general pool pool noodle of ease and safety and self-comfort instead of the rock and the shield and the steady anchor who is our incomparable God of comfort. And too often we throw that same noodle to our brothers and sisters who are going through hard times. We need to point each other to Christ. We need to point each other to this incomparable God who is majestic and sovereign. And He is faithful. You can count on Him fulfilling every promise that He has made to you. And there's great comfort in that. We need to believe and trust that the most encouraging truths and comforting truths for the Christian are those that point our hearts and our minds to the person and work of Jesus and the hope that we have in Him. And we need to preach these truths to ourselves. And we need to grab hold of them. Grab hold of them tightly and don't let them go. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for being confronted this morning with the truths of who you are. And Lord, I pray that your spirit won't allow any one of us to leave unchanged this morning. That you won't let us to leave unmoved by your glory and how you've revealed yourself to us this morning. Oh Lord help us to know you. Help us to love you more. And help us to worship you in spirit and in truth. Amen.